This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have Crispin Burke, and we are discussing his new article in War on the Rocks, The Pentagon Should Adjust Standards for Cyber Soldiers as It's Always Done. So we wanted to have this conversation um, because I think as our show sort of tries to look at issues that um, where InfoSec and security, like security and politics meet, we thought this article would be a good sort of trying to understand why the Pentagon, why DOD has such a hard time, you know, recruiting sustaining and maintaining a cybersecurity workforce, especially when in the last um, few years they've stood up Cyber Command, they've, they've taken an effort, at least a public effort, to include cybersecurity and incumbent components into their thinking. So please welcome um, Chris Binberg. Hey, it's um, a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you. Um, I want to start off with just a, like a really simple question. Which is sure. when we, when we discuss recruiting standards, mm-hmm. you know, what do we mean by recruiting standards? And then, you know, how does cybersecurity personnel sort of challenge these standards? Okay, well, just to kind of go back to our Lucas interview back from November, uh, when we just uh, somewhere between Veterans Day and Thanksgiving uh, weekend, we talked about some of the recruiting standards that. Uh, service members have to live up to and how it's very difficult to find those with the, both the qualifications to serve and the propensity to serve. Uh, and there was an interesting article in Stars and Stripes, which was published, I think, just yesterday, which touches upon some of these very themes. So the armed forces had to bring in about a quarter of a million new recruits every year. Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, a quarter of a million recruits. And the target demographic is an American who has high school diploma, who has above average scores on aptitude tests, so you're above the 50th percentile, you're medically fit, you're physically fit, you can meet the physical fitness tests, and you don't have any disqualified medical conditions, and that you have no felonies on your records, okay? The number of Americans who can meet that between the ages of 17 and 24 is just 4 million people, okay? You have to get a quarter of a million people out of that group of 4 million people. To make matters worse is that recruiters estimate that those with the propensity to serve, people who just want to serve in the military, of that group, only about 400,000 people really have any desire to serve. So you have to get about a quarter of a million Americans from a demographic of 400,000 Americans. That, and that's very difficult. Um, what you're also finding is that making matters worse is that there are a number of stereotypes that military service members have that are coming to the forefront, and it's turning young Americans away from military service. So get this. According to Stars and Stripes, 63% of youth between the ages of 16 and 20 think that it's either likely or very likely that someone leaving the military will have some sort of psychological problem, right? 
nearly two-thirds of young people think that those getting out of the military were somehow given PTSD or something to that effect, which is not true. PTSD is a problem that does occur in the military, uh, but it's not exclusive to the military, and it certainly doesn't affect every single service member. But young people see a lot of these stories on the news about service members with PTSD, or they see TV dramas where usually the only veteran that you see in TV dramas is the guy with PTSD, and they think that everybody in the military has PTSD, which is certainly not the case. Nearly half of young people think that someone leaving the military will have some sort of a physical injury because, again, they turn on the news and they see uh, veterans who need medical care uh, or a wounded veteran, and that's what they think most people leaving the military are like. And making matters worse is that there's been a marked decline in the number of Americans who are aware of college benefits from the military. So back in 2004, roughly about 80% of young people knew about the GI Bill. But even though the GI Bill has expanded significantly with the post-9-11 GI Bill, fewer Americans are aware of college benefits, even as the benefits have increased. So that's some of the challenges that recruiters are facing, just trying to fill the ranks across the services from truck drivers to infantrymen to pilots and everything like that. Making matters worse, okay, is that cyber personnel are in very high demand, both in the government and in the private sector. So the Defense Department isn't just competing with Google for talent. They're not competing with Symantec for talent, for cybersecurity researchers. They're competing with the CIA. They're competing with the NSA. They're competing with the Department of Homeland Security, all of whom need qualified cyber personnel. So when we look at these uh, agencies across the U.S. government, all of them allow exceptions for people to be overweight. You can have facial hair. You can have tattoos. The military holds you to a much higher standard uh, for the time being. So the number of people who can actually join the military of those who are not that propensity to serve, that's a much smaller number. So the military really has its work cut out for them. They have to link people with the desire to serve and the qualifications to serve. And really, a lot of these people who want to enter cybersecurity fields, they have a much easier time entering the private sector, and they have a lot more uh, attractive job options in the private sector. So, Making matters worse. Oh, oh go, go ahead. ahead. No, I uh, wanted to say that I, I, wanted, I wanted you to sort of integrate the point of, you know, this isn't the first time that the military has dealt with, spe- like, recruiting from specialized fields. So, for mm-hmm. instance... You know, the same thing that you could say about cybersecurity, recruiting cybersecurity professionals, you could you can make the same argument for lawyers, doctors, and even aviators. So, you know, in, in that sense, you know, you know, is it really just retreading ground in terms of recruitment or is it, you know, is cybersecurity truly an individual, like a unique challenge? Uh I think it's very similar to what you're seeing uh, with the medical community and maybe the legal community or even the religious community. So when we go back to 2005 to 2009, uh, military needed to grow very, very quickly, or the Army in particular needed to grow very, very quickly. So they turned to a number of measures to bring people into the ranks. Some were controversial, like the issuing of criminal waivers. But I think some 
were a little bit more acceptable. One measure they took was to recall a lot of retirees who could serve non-combat roles, highly specialized roles where they didn't have to actually serve in combat, but we needed skills, particularly in the medical community. For example, I had a flight surgeon in Germany who was 79 years old, okay? Even though he probably had no disqualifying medical conditions in terms of no heart palpitations or anything like that, he was clearly not up to the physical standards of an 18-year-old. But he could perform his duties as a flight surgeon in Germany very, very well. And I think that you may see more of that for cybersecurity, looking at people who can perform the job but may not be up to those physical standards of an 18-year-old. One thing I saw from recall retirees is that they can also have very low tolerance for army bureaucracy. So here at the Loopcast, what I, I like to think we do, the Loopcast is like the special edition for blog posts. So in a deleted passage from that War in the Rocks article, I talked about a warrant officer that I had about 2004, 5, 6, who was brought back onto active duty, and he had the most gloriously flared sideburns ever. And you could not get this guy to, to trim his sideburns. In fact, he even went to the IG to prevent anybody from telling him to trim his sideburns. And I think you're going to see that. And as we look at ourselves, as we look at the military, you know, some things are accepted in the medical community and in the religious community that are generally not accepted throughout the general force. Look, if you looked at your chaplains, if you looked at your people serving in hospitals, they're probably not up to the same standards of discipline and physical fitness as your younger soldiers. And I think we as a military have come to accept that. And I think we'll come to accept that with cyber soldiers as well. Um, another thing that I think we may see with cyber soldiers is that we talk a lot about our physical fitness standards. Well, from 2005 to 2009, the standards for physical fitness in terms of meeting high weight requirements and passing your physical fitness test, they never went away, but they simply weren't enforced. The Army made it bureaucratically much more difficult to enforce them. And what's interesting is that if you look at 2005 to 2006, the number of people chaptered for failing to pass their physical fitness test or uh, being overweight plummeted by about 80% because everybody got the message. We need troops in uniform and we can't kick them out because of these sorts of things. And I'm not kidding. I saw with my own eyes a warrant officer who was 300 pounds, 100 pounds overweight, but he possessed qualifications as both a Chinook instructor pilot and a maintenance test pilot, and we turned a blind eye to that. And I think you're going to see a lot of that with cyber as well. Interesting about, I think, cyber when you look at other specialized fields, is that how the military kind of grew around the World War II era when we needed to expand the military from a very small force. It was like the 20th largest uh, armed force in the world to a force of about 8 million people. And we looked for talent in certain specialized areas. To get flyers, especially uh, cargo pilots, we turned to the private sector to recruit people who could fly cargo planes. We turned to talented women who could fly planes, and we used them, uh, the WASPs, we call them, the Women Auxiliary uh, Service Pilots, to ferry aircraft back and forth. We turned to very qualified people in the private sector to recruit a division of ski troops. 
we turn to Olympic alpine skiers in the U.S. So I think there are many uh, forerunners of what we're trying to do with cyber. And if you look at the personnel policies for cyber, we're offering what's called a direct commission. If you meet certain standards, we will start you off as a second lieutenant or maybe even higher, put you through a little bit of specialized training, and you can serve at a much higher grade than you would if you had just gone through basic training. And we do the same thing with doctors as well. I think that another good similarity that you see with the medical community and which you may see with cyber is that the medical community is much more accepting of people who can uh, meet certain professional standards but may have some sort of disqualifying condition. Recently, uh, we had an issue with uh, Sikhs wanting to join the military. Uh, A Sikh wanted to join as a doctor. And culturally, Sikhs do not shave their beards, and they'll usually wear a headdress. And that had disqualified him from serving in the military. But he met every other professional standard. He could go through all the training. He was physically fit. He met the appropriate uh, qualifications for a doctor. And the military gave um, waivers uh, to Sikhs wanting to join the military, allowed them to keep their beards, um, allowed them to wear specialized headdresses, reasonable exceptions to allow people who uh, had incredible skills to offer our army. And I think that you will see the same thing with cyber troops, people who may have a disqualifying condition, who may have gotten uh, some sort of an ear piercing that uh, deformed their earlobes or who may have sleeve tattoos. You may see exceptions made for those personnel who otherwise meet every other professional qualification. So then, I mean, in the sense of, uh, of training within the military, because it, it, it seems like I, I completely see your point with doctors and lawyers, but in terms of aviators, I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, please correct me if I'm wrong. But doesn't the military train its own aviators? So in terms it, of helicopter these pilots? Days, oh, yeah. These days it does. Um, I'm going back to the Second World War, however, when aviation was a very new or, or relatively new field of endeavor. The military turned towards commercial pilots, and it also ran its own flight schools as well. But in order to grow the force um, as quickly as it did, it turned towards the private sector to help speed people into the ranks. So, I mean, my, my point is, is what stops the military from developing its own sort of internal training program for IT, for cybersecurity? Is there something, is it bureaucratic? Is it, or is it? Oh, it, it certainly does. Uh, to, but, but one of the issues with cyber is just to get into the cyber field and to enter the cyber training, there is a kind of a aptitude test for cyber. And one of my sources told me, that only about 5% of people can pass that qualification. So just to get into cyber training, it's a very high bar to clear. Okay. And then to sort of parallel, what about the use of contractors? I think, is that is that sort of prevalent or is there sort of because of the nature of the task, it's preferred to, to have your own sort of, to use your own in-house talent? I think that, the military will want to have some in-house talent, uh, particularly it's going to want to have some service members serving in command centers. You're also going to see a demand for cyber personnel who can serve with ground forces. One, um, 
which we're seeing now at the combat training centers is that there is a cyber threat that we try to replicate and you need qualified cyber personnel to help battle that cyber threat and they need to keep up with ground troops. They may need to parachute into an area. So you're going to see some people that we make uh, certain exceptions for in terms of physical ability, but I think that the military will also need to see some people who can keep up with soldiers and help defend a command center in the middle of nowhere from a cyber attack. So I want to maybe um, sort of switch footings and you brought this up earlier. You sort of were circling around the idea of culture and Mm -hmm. um, as a general sense, is, is the military having a difficulty keeping up with sort of 21st century culture in the sense of, you know, everything is networked, everything is wired, everything is logging something somewhere. Um, I mean, is the, is the military just having difficulty keeping up with the culture in, in that sense? I, I think so, is that, you know, you look at our senior leaders, uh, great people, very talented, very uh, adept, but many of them are well into their 60s. The, the chiefs of staff are either in their late 50s or early 60s, and they may not have grown up with this technology. Just to give you an example, the Commandant of the Marine Corps was recently talking about GPS. And he said, and this is paraphrasing, not a direct quote, but he said that if you turn on your cell phone in the middle of the ocean, your cell phone has GPS and the enemy can track GPS. That's not how GPS works. The GPS in your phone is a passive receiver. Nobody is going to detect the GPS in your phone. They can detect other things in your phone, but not the GPS. And that's the technology that's been out for 40 years. It GPS is a major national security concern if it's taken away, as we're starting to see with GPS jammers. But you have the nation's most senior Marine who seems unable to understand as to how it works. And you see that with a lot of other things, too, culturally. Uh, recently, there was the freakout over Pokemon Go. You should have seen that there, there were actual safety briefings and warning labels about Soldiers playing Pokemon Go because people were that terrified of that little app that I played for about a month and then got rid of because it was boring. Uh, You also saw a similar freakout over blogs probably about 10 years ago. There was an interesting cartoon put out by the Army's chief information officer. And you had a character that looked almost exactly like uh, Mahmoud Aminadjad. And he's at the Terrorist of the Year award ceremony. And he wants to give the Terrorist of the Year award to bloggers because he couldn't have gotten all the sensitive information if it weren't for the bloggers. I'm like, seriously? We live in a world where we have more <laughs> security leaks from Chelsea Manning, from Edward Snowden, from General Cartwright, who told the New York Times about Stuxnet, which was highly classified at the time. Those are the truth that threats to operational security, not a do with a Twitter feed. But again, it was a very reactionary response to this new technology that I think a lot of senior leaders did not understand at the time. I want to that you, said, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry about that. No um, problem. You mentioned operational security, which sort of brings up, you know, besides Pokemon Go, I mean, I think uh, the Strava <laughs> controversy seemed like. I mean, with Pokemon Go, I, I understand, like, it, it could be, you could geolocate hey, somebody. Secure, secure area. Don't go in the secure area if there's a Pikachu there, guys. 
Right, but I mean, like with with the Strava com- controversy, the the Strava heat map, it, it's almost like you know, it, it, on day one, everybody was like ooing and aahing. Oh, look, you can you could see islands in the South Pacific with running activity, and then a week later, oh, it's you know, I can go from that heat map to scraping you know personal data from their their website to now associating names ranks and actually identifying people on these bases so in, mm-hmm. in that sense i mean how, how do you integrate fitness trackers into opsec training into personal security training i mean how does that what? oh god yeah i think that we just need to have an open and frank discussion as to what operational security means in 2018 a couple of years ago uh, there was a guy living in pakistan and he heard a helicopter overhead and the helicopter is preventing him from sleeping. And so he fired off a couple of tweets about how annoying this helicopter was, blah, blah, blah. That night was May 1st, morning of May 2nd, 2011. And those were the helicopters involved in the Osama bin Laden raid. This guy literally live tweeted the Osama bin Laden raid as it was happening. <laughs> but that's the world we live in. And shortly after it occurred, there's the one helicopter which uh, crash landed into the compound. And the next morning, there are pictures of it taken with cell phones all over the Internet of a design that had never been seen before. It was clearly a stealth helicopter. But this is the world we live in. Uh, There was the rescue of James Foley, uh, an attempted rescue of the journalist who was later beheaded by ISIS. Uh, That was also live tweeted uh, on Twitter. Somebody uh, heard the helicopters and uh, noted that a rescue attempt was being made. That was published on the internet. We live in a world where everybody with a GPS and equipped smartphone is an intelligence collector and disseminator. And what you're seeing with the Strava controversy is kind of a harbinger of things to come. Look, we have all sorts of devices that collect data, often geolocated data, and stores them either on the device or uploads it into the cloud. And, you know, it's going to be fitness trackers today, but it's going to be something tomorrow. Look at all the devices we now have that are smart. You've got Alexa in your home. You have, I saw it advertised recently, a smart water bottle. You have, believe it or not, smart sex toys that are connected to the Internet. There's going to be 20 billion devices connected to the Internet of things by the year 2020, and it's just going to grow. So what I think what you're seeing with cybersecurity is that our personal devices really are our most vulnerable point because we're doing incredible work defending DOD networks. We restrict access to those, but who's restricting access to our personal devices? And I think that's really the Achilles heel. As you're seeing with uh, the attacks by Fancy Bear, as you're seeing with the WannaCry virus, our Facebook accounts, our Gmail accounts, our personal accounts are being increasingly targeted by state-sponsored actors, and we all have personal devices. It's the year 2018. Uh, Senior military officials probably have, almost all of them have Facebook accounts. Almost all of them have personal email accounts. Any soldier under the age of 25, which which is the average age of a soldier within the U.S. Army, cannot remember a world without the Internet. They can't operate without it. So how do we culturally adapt to that? And there was a great thread on Twitter from uh, Lauren DeYoung Schoolman about 
how we appeal to sort of that cyber savvy culture of younger people. And we really need to think about how we're going to cater to these cyber soldiers when they walk into a new military organization and they're forced to use DTS to book their travel, the most backwards program there is, or they're using AKO, or they're using Internet Explorer 8. Think about that. We're trying to recruit cyber soldiers, but we're still using Internet Explorer 8, which is like the most unsecure browser there is. Or we sit them down and put them in front of that stupid cybersecurity challenge with Tina and her damn MyTunes. We need to do something to kind of appeal to this net-savvy culture that I don't think we're doing yet. But um, I think that, that by elevating Cybercom, that by a lot of the innovation programs that we have in the military to help with data collection, I think that those are going to spur a cultural change. And I think we need to see more senior people in cyber fields. I think we need to see more tech-savvy people in uh the chief information office and places like that who are tuned in to internet culture. And I think that that will help the military appeal to this generation of soldiers who's grown up with the internet. And uh, I'm sorry. Um, You mentioned appeal, which um, I I understand like, you know, building appeal for the younger generation, but what about appeal for the older generation? So what I mean is, uh, people like, I don't mean to personalize, but people in my age group sort of established and career oriented because mm-hmm. I, the reason I bring it up is because in sort of the run up to our conversation, uh, I went through and I, I was sort of reminded of a lot of my friends on Twitter. Um, their mm-hmm. stories of, you know, why did they leave NSA? Why did they leave, um, a, a government position for a private position? And, mm-hmm. And I, I think a lot of them accepted lower pay, sort of that, mm-hmm. that was, you know, it's lower pay, but you're serving your country was sort of the, mm-hmm. the, the phrase. And and the thing that kept on coming up consistent across, you know, five or six people was the government shutdown, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, the inconsistency of being able to have their position funded or not knowing if, you know, the next congressional debate will lead to a shutdown. And right. I, I think for a lot of them, you know, I, I, this is an issue of retention, I guess. But for a lot of them, that's what caused sort of going from public sector to private sector. And w- what I want you to speak to is, you know, how do you build appeal for working for the government when, you know, you, you do have that, that, that sort of attracting young talent. But how do you attract middle talent, people who have houses, children and sort of. You know, if the government shuts down, that's a you know big crimp in the budget, so to speak. <laughs> well, and, and is the grass necessarily greener in the private sector? For now, it is. But you're looking at the private sector. Some company may, may go bankrupt or shut down. I, I don't think you're going to see Apple or Facebook or Google go bankrupt anytime in the near future. But the private sector is unpredictable as well. So you're leaving government jobs are often seen as much more stable and you're less likely to be fired than the private sector. I think it's probably different in the field of cybersecurity at, at this point, though, but you, know, you are taking that risk on, on the outside. So I want to maybe um, switch footing again and maybe mm-hmm. look at sort of possible solutions, because I hate, 
that we've sort of fallen into this trap of pointing out problems and, you know, not coming up with a solution. Even, even if it's sort of a okay solution, it's still sort of working towards um, the bigger idea. So in that sense, I mean, what, what solutions have you heard of? You know, what solutions should we be thinking about and looking at when sort of tackling the issue of recruiting cybersecurity personnel? Well, one of the, we talked about recruiting. What I think would be an even greater challenge is retaining that talent. Uh, the NSA has been seeing massive turnover, um, and a lot of the, these people, after you go through a round of training and get some experience, you're very profitable on the outside. So in terms of retaining talent, uh, there was a proposal put forward called the Cyber Workforce Incubator, and you can read about it uh, on Lawfare, uh, which is based and they took the idea from uh, white people, which is produced at UC Berkeley. And in this model, the federal workforce, whether it's the NSA, the, the intelligence community, Department of Homeland Security, or the DOD, would take in qualified people from Silicon Valley, uh, give them an internship for a year, where they, uh, cybersecurity experts from Silicon Valley could share their expertise and gain expertise from the DOD, and then take that back to Silicon Valley. I think you could expand this concept in allowing people, uh, service members, to depart the military and or stay in the military and work at Silicon Valley firms, either at Symantec or cybersecurity firms or Google, uh, gain some experience there, and then and share your experience with those agencies, or even work for departments which manage critical infrastructure. So. One of the greatest cybersecurity challenges we have now is what if there was a cyber attack on the power grid or on a nuclear plant like we did with Stuxnet? Who would be there to help defend it? I think that if you allowed service members to have an internship at these organizations for a year or so and then transition back into military service, you might enhance their quality of life and make it much more desirable to keep serving the military and allowing your skills to be used by uh, American firms that can help protect fellow Americans. I think that allowing people to transition back and forth would not only benefit the DOD, but also help protect our critical infrastructure and uh, private sector infrastructure, which I think is just as important these days. How do you, in terms of sort of building those cross links, you know, for retention and, and maintenance, how do you build those links between DOD and Silicon Valley? I, I, I think the, the popular conception is, you know, this, this idea that Silicon Valley, you know, mm-hmm. sort of keeps itself away from DOD only, you know, mm-hmm. in, you know, few instances that there, there are exceptions. But in terms of sort of building that Silicon Valley to the DOD pipeline, the DOD to the Silicon Valley, you know, you know, how do you do that? Is it, is it a matter of like personal relationships and then from personal relationships, you build this network or is it, you know, just keep it at the executive and managerial level? I think that you're actually seeing more interaction between Silicon Valley and uh, the DOD in some of the defense innovation cells that are just now springing up. You have uh, top level Silicon Valley executives talking about innovation within the DOD workforce and, so I think that there is an incredible amount of interest in what the DOD does, and I think that there is a desire for 
partnership with the Defense Department. So I don't think that the relationship is as standoffish as we might uh, initially think. Interesting. So then I want to maybe end the show with sort of, you know, um, with, the, with the theoretical question, which is, mm-hmm. You know, tomorrow somebody comes to you and says, you know, Crispin, you're the one in charge of developing a recruitment, a retention, and a sustaining program for cybersecurity professionals. You know, mm-hmm. how do you, in your mind, it, you know, this is like in, in this sort of theoretical setup, it's from the ground up. So how do you, mm-hmm. how would you build, you know, this sort of pipeline from the ground up? You know, what is your ideal in this case? I... And focusing not just on the DOD, but I think the federal workforce as well, I think we need to start reaching out towards kids in high school, cybersecurity programs, cybersecurity camps, not making a recruit necessarily recruiting thing, but offer them tips that they can use. Very few schools offer uh, computer coding classes. If the DOD reached out or the federal government reached out to kids in high school to help them develop cybersecurity skills, to help them de- develop coding skills, to help make what is often seen as an illegitimate skill uh, in terms of computer use, make that a legitimate skill that kids can be proud of. So I think that reaching out towards younger people will help make cybersecurity and maybe the federal workforce much more attractive in the future. So I want to, before we leave for today, I, you know, we always ask, you know, give us, one last thought, one last thing to sort of gnaw on and, and think about before we, we sign off for the day. So I think that cyber really is the next battlefield. Uh, if you look at the what was confirmed by the DNI, let me make that caveat, the Russian interference in 2016 by uh, uh, the hacking groups and the troll farms. I think that Control over cyberspace is going to be the next Cold War. It's not going to be fought with tanks. It's going to be fought in the information realm. And I think that you're already starting to see this between the West and authoritarian states. And I think this is why we need to start taking cyber more seriously. It It is a grave national security threat to our way of life. And it's a form of war in which every American is a target. So this is why we need to start waking up and taking this threat more seriously. Okay. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. Um, that was Crispin Burke, uh, the author of The Pentagon Should Adjust Standards for Cyber Soldiers, as it's always done. We're going to have a link to that. And thank you so much for, for being a guest on the show. Yeah, and uh, just one more parting thought. Given that we are recording this on Super Bowl Sunday and that I'm 15 minutes away from Philadelphia, i got to say fly, Eagles, fly. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> All 